Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Log In Audio Out Library of Games podcast. I'm your host, Hugo, and I'm here with my co-host, Taylor. Say hi, Taylor. Hello. And today we have a very special episode on video game design, and we have two very special guests. We have Eric and Roger. So uh, when are you guys going to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Eric. How you doing, guys? Um... I have been in college for video game design for too long, um, <laughs> and if I had to pick a favorite game, uh, or at least series of mine, it, it's really tough, uh, but I guess I'd have to pick Halo, just because of the really good social experiences I've had with it. Nice, okay. okay. Uh, hello, my name is Roger. I've been at Columbia College Chicago studying game design for about three years now. And I'm about to start my senior capstone. So, woo, fourth year major project. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my favorite game is Kingdom Hearts. At least for right now, it's Kingdom Hearts just because I grew up with it. It's been with me since Mexico. Like, I here, Mexico, and then back. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So, the way... Uh we always usually do things is we like to ask questions and see on your responses. So, today, since we're... Video games take a big chunk of the media, and a lot of them are constantly taken for granted, specifically within terms of how they're made. And can can one of you guys tell me like your what's your idea of the process of how what it takes to make a video game? I'll let you go first, Roger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> The, the process, well, it really just depends on like what you're trying to work on, but usually the process is, um, from what I know, it is usually three major areas that are incorporated. So it's uh, design, it's development, and it's like audio and visuals. So the artistic side, so you'll have uh, animations, character models, uh, backgrounds, foregrounds, all of the like different aspects that come together to create the sort of ecosystem that you're playing in. But it's also the audio, which also gets neglected a lot, at least uh, player-wise, uh, because although like no one's like, oh, it's just audio, it's just you hearing things. No one really sees all of the like large technical effort that goes into creating these immersive sounds that really pull you into the environments. But like uh, design is kind of like the medium between uh, development and art, or at least the artistic side of game design, because what um, game design is is trying to come together for both uh art and development so you're speaking with the programmers as well as with the artists and trying to communicate effectively the limitations between the two so how much the art people can implement and how much the uh, programming and development people can implement to create the like environment and the idea that you're sort of going for so the design people are there to like intermediate between the two and then, you know, the developers are there to create all of the features, the small aspects, like, say, uh, j j jumping or, like, the mini games, like, kind of, like, Rehydrated did with their, like, multiplayer thing. It's, like, they're kind of there to develop all of the, the like, damage outputs, all of the attacks, all of the different little things that you can do throughout the game, even if it's, like, snow crunching on the ground or uh, you shooting someone in an FPS. So that's... That's my take on the game design process. So then I suppose my, um, my mind doesn't differ too greatly from that. Um, you know, I started college years ago um, and philosophy is kind of 
uh, I guess, ebb and flow with a lot. So um, most of my, my experiences and education on the technical side of it, um, you know, there, there's also obviously, of course, the art side, uh, but I would break it up more so into if I, this is me putting my own two cents to my own spin on it. Um, there's the technical side. Um, there is the blend of technical and art, which is technically art. If you want to get really pedantic, split some hairs. Uh, and then there's testing, um, because testing is part of the iterative process. And that is a really, really, really huge part of the whole, the whole scheme, the whole situation. Um, with developing a game. Um, without testing, you get things like a lot of those broken shovelware games that popped out on the, on the SNES way back when. Um, you get a lot of that shovelware Wii stuff that happened a while back. Um, you know, it, it, the whole thing kind of falls apart if you don't balance out the three, the three aspects, three different systems that are in place. And obviously communication is an absolutely massive massive part of of the whole thing interesting interesting okay um so do you have any like good examples on like off the top of your head that would be as, as a way of like that as a way to describe good game design per se because i know um roger brought up the rehydrated series and for me i like to bring up uh super mario odyssey or like specifically like super mario 64 where they had like these normally the game was uh, people played it initially but there was some people who who played the game a lot and beat it and it's very like sandboxes ish and there was uh, there was so much relative free movement that people found a way to get on certain places that normally one person wouldn't be able to get, get to and people would think oh this i found this really really niche area and i think oh i think I, I just broke the game and then what they find later is like a pile full of coins near them which is like the develop, developer's way of saying oh we knew you'd come up here and i guess like do you have any like examples of something like little little like fun trinkets like that i wouldn't say anything so specific um yeah. <laughs> i in i would definitely say the game has to just be fun okay. um I mean, there are games out there that have been, you know, the game, it was intended to be one thing and it ended up playing completely different how the developers intended and it became something totally and completely different. The original Dota is a perfect example of that. That's a Warcraft 3 mod. It came out of an RTS and suddenly it spawned an entire new genre of games because the players wanted something different even though they loved the original game. Um, and so I would definitely say that the, the main, the core concept is fun. Um, and every game is going to have parts of it that aren't as fun, but they need to be good enough to get the player, you know, to the fun parts or the more fun parts as you go along to kind of get to bridge that gap and the gaps cannot be too big. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, so what would you think is your per how, how would you say your personal experience is going into this type of genre of of a, of a work of a work field because i know like what would be your personal experiences while learn trying to learn stuff about game design like did you struggle with it did you enjoy it or like any key moments um if you don't mind me taking the reins again um for me it was actually very much a struggle to decide 
Um, coming out of high school, I was very unsure of myself. Um, I hadn't picked a college yet. I hadn't really picked a major or anything. Um, I considered three separate fields, three very vastly different fields um, of, of career. Uh, I considered following my dad's footsteps of going into the Navy. Uh, I considered psychology. And then I considered something technical with computers, but I didn't really know what. Um, you know, I didn't really think I had what it took to be a video game designer. Um, and then a buddy of mine dragged me to an open house at Columbia downtown. Um, and, oh man, I, I saw the department and I knew where home was. <laughs> um, and when I got there, I was intimidated. I was, again, unsure of myself. I had very little confidence in my abilities. Um, but, you know, having good classmates, having a friend in school that followed, you know, we went together um, and having decent teachers very much gave me a lot of that confidence I needed. Um, mostly not because of what they taught me, but they taught me, I mean, yes, what they taught me, but they didn't, they didn't just teach me technical skill. I had that already. Um, they taught me how to learn more, how to learn more effectively and efficiently and how to communicate better than I already was. Um, and those things have led to my success in school, not just, you know, learning the basic technical stuff. Interesting. All right. How about you, Roger? I think I kind of, at least from the beginning, had a, like a, uh, a different <laughs> viewpoint because I, when I went into applying for college and everything, I already knew what I wanted to do. I knew where I was going to go and I knew that I was going to start my career in that. And so it was like, oh yeah, I knew I was going to Columbia. I had gone there multiple times on like open houses and just tours in general and everything. And the department that really fascinated me the most was the interactive arts and media department because I just absolutely adored all the like animations, all of the game design, all the character modeling, everything that was available there, all of the tech, all of the like drawing tablets and everything. It just really intrigued me at that moment. It just sort of re-cemented that idea that I wanted to go for game design. I wanted to be able to create my own uh, experiences my own stories that I could just like immerse people into or at least immerse myself into because I knew where everything was going to go and it's like um very much like Eric said it was very intimidating <laughs> to be there <laughs> seeing everything like it was cool and everything like it was very intriguing but it was also like wow you're gonna have to learn like the programming languages how all of the like systems work how like uh, Visual Studio and Unity and Unreal and how like it all works together to create like working uh, effects, moving characters and and like interactive objects and everything. So like to me, it was like, whoa, this is insane. But I still thought that it was a good idea to keep going with it. There were some moments where I was like, oh Jesus, this is killing me slowly. But like <laughs> in the end, watching the product, at least mostly programming wise for me watching it all come together and execute what I wanted it to execute was just it was really fulfilling so I was like I need to stay on this interesting and th th this goes into like a next thing of necessarily how hard it is per se um what what advice do you necessarily have for any like people who want to tr go into games like what's like what would be like a key pitch you want to, to high school to say high schoolers Computers are hard. 
<laughs> um, and I mean yes. that in the most encouraging way possible. Um, I had the good fortune of growing up in a very technically capable household. Uh, my mother was an x-ray tech in hospitals, so she worked with a lot of complicated, very expensive machinery. Um, my, dad, my dad and my grandfather on my mom's side were both teaching me computers from the age of three years old, so I was taking them apart at five and building them at, like, ten. Um, and so, you know, I, I was very familiar with computers, technology, and all that stuff. Um, and I understand that a lot of people don't have that advantage in life. Um, that doesn't mean there's no hope. Not at all. Um, there were people in some of my classes in junior year who barely knew their way around a computer and they were still making it work. Because um, all you really need to be able to do is, well, A, you have to be willing to learn the technology, learn how to kind of marry your hardware. Um, if you can figure out how, you know, how to just become comfortable with a computer in any, in any sense of that, um, that will help you immensely, just being willing. Um, but once you can figure that out, um, the doors open up and you will have a lot more possibilities in front of you. Because um, it's not easy. It's going to take a lot of work. Uh, even for me, there are a lot of things I had to learn. Um but learning how to learn and being, again, comfortable with the technology on some, any level will get, get you very far because you can always build on what you already know. Oh, for sure. I definitely agree. Um, I had like the opposite experience. I didn't, I, this is like, Hugo can testify to a lot of this is I never really had a lot of technology in my life. At least I couldn't afford to have technology in my life. So whenever I did get something or something went wrong, it was like, I need to like look it up, go on the internet, go to the library, do something so I can fix it and keep it with me. I mean, it happened with my PlayStation 2. It happened with my SNES. It happened with my iPod. It happened with everything. I figured out how to like take it apart and then rebuild everything myself so that I could keep using it into the future for who knows how many years. Like I've had some of this stuff for like basically 20 years now like since I was like a one or two and it's like it still hasn't worn out I mean I still have my PlayStation 2 from kindergarten it's gone through relentless number of smacks I fixed like six controllers already and but it all it all ends up working together and it's like um I think that I could also I don't kind of don't want to ever revisit that trauma of <laughs> high school but like I, I will thank it for giving me the sense of self needed to like be proactive and sort of teach myself how to do things because like sure they taught things and the teachers were like pretty good but sometimes I just didn't feel like I was learning anything from them so then when we had to like turn in assignments and stuff like that I taught myself how to do the math I taught myself how to do the reading I taught myself how to like interpret English language and everything so it's like being able to have that confidence and being able to look up the things on the internet or go to the library or ask people for help and figure out the things myself I think really helped with being able to get into the industry because then it was like okay well if I don't have anyone to ask or if I don't have like the library as a resource or something then maybe I can use the internet figure out how to program all of the things myself double triple quadruple check all of my programming all of my design all of my models to make sure that the unity wasn't crashing or any of my projects were crashing it was just like being able to push myself to be able to check everything and then check it again and then check it a fourth time to make sure everything worked correctly and the projects were the way I wanted them to be. 1,000% respect for that. Absolutely. Completely agree. 
so encouraging to to hear you both talk about like learning about your process of learning and how that is so important and how your college experiences really have, have helped, um, you know, grow that skill. Because um, I think it's something that is really missing in the, the workforce in general and not just in the world of video games and everything. Um, I am curious to know what the process was like for applying to your schools and your programs. Um, did they require a portfolio? Like what kind of experience did you have to show that you had with game design? So with me, uh, I don't know how much the process changed after I came to Columbia, um, but I applied in, what was it, end of 20, was end of 2011 uh, that I applied. And Columbia in particular is very good. They're very opening, they're all very open and accepting of, of people. Um, they don't actually really test you on anything. Um, they really just want your college transcripts and they want to see you actually like showed up. Um, and then they basically just wanted an essay on why you're passionate about what you want to do. Um, and they, you know, there was no test, there was no portfolio required, um, because that's, that's something that you built while you were there. Um, and I mean, that's very much the case for me, at least, uh, we built our portfolio when we were there we learned everything we needed like having a portfolio sure would help um but it doesn't gain you extra brownie points or anything getting into the school um i mean it's a school that when i applied had an 80 percent acceptance rate uh because basically again they just wanted to know that you gave any kind of care about going and being in that school um and i think that really helps a lot of people you know kind of boost their confidence because if you're not afraid of getting rejected, then, you know, you're going to be more honest. You're going to be more open and you're going to, you know, show more of yourself rather than just trying to try to play the system. So as long as if I'm correct, if I'm, I'm correct or reiterating, as long as like it is aside from having like some type of experience or skill, as long as you show up and obviously show that you have like a drive, it's definitely a good starting point. Yes, definitely. That that's what they want to see. They want to see they want to see that twinkle in your eye. They want to know that you have again any kind of care for what you want to do, and as long as they can see that, then you're pretty much good to go. Yeah, I mean it hasn't really changed from when I applied, which was like what 2017. <laughs> like it it really hasn't changed much at all, which was actually something I really liked about Columbia was that they were willing to like accept anyone even if they had a portfolio or not. It's like as long as you showed that you were willing to put in the effort, that you were passionate about what you wanted to do and you were ready to hit it like right when you got there, they were like go ahead. You can have zero experience. You could be from like, don't even know the language here. You're welcome here. We'll teach you as much as we can and get you as far as you can go. Amazing. It was my favorite part. About <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is actually a question for Taylor now. Uh, oh. <laughs> um, so for those who don't know, uh, Taylor is, is, is a librarian and she also yeah. has experience working with a lot of high schoolers. <laughs> and my question is, at what point do you kind of would you want to like try to point someone towards like game design per se or anything towards the field of video games? I, so I saw a, a lot of teens. So 
I, for years, worked at uh, UMedia Chicago at the Harold Washington Library, the big teen center. Um, so, and I mostly did video game-based programs. I do not have a background in game design or programming. So what I did was more, let's talk about games um, because teenagers don't, and really a lot of people don't get much of a platform to express why they love video games and why games are great. Um, so we did, you know, this. <laughs> the first iteration of this podcast and other videos. And because I was working with a group of young people who absolutely loved video games, that's why they were there. I came across a lot of teens who wanted to go into the game design field. Um, and in, in the, my kind of approach to career counseling, um, it was really about like, do your homework, understand what the field is, um, I also put together a lot of career days, um, and I did two game design career days, or the video game field career days, and, you know, we had indie developers come, we had, you know, people come from the only AAA studio in Chicago, <laughs> NetherRealm, and understanding that there are really different experiences in different kinds of, uh, you know, game careers. There's AAA, which looks different. Um, if you're doing the technical, that's different than doing art, than being an indie developer. So really trying to understand why do you love games? Um, do you really want to make them? Because if you love something, you think, oh, I really want to make this thing. But then it's not particularly suited to your skill set or your your general like attitude of like what you like want work to look like i always told teens always ask the question like what does your average day look like in this field i mean you probably don't want to go into game design if you don't like sort of sitting in front of a computer all day um so really getting them to ask questions that weren't just about like i love this thing i want to do this thing but like, okay, how will this really fit in with the life that you want? And that's really hard to unpack when you are, you know, 16, 17, 18. But I mean, we had professionals there. You could ask those questions and start thinking about it and reflecting on it. Um, you know, I, I definitely like Roger is studying game design. Um, a couple other teens did. But some teens, I think, realized that their passion for video games wasn't actually really about game design. It was about something else. Um, you know, one of the alumni of the Library of Games program is actually becoming a librarian <laughs> right now. Um, and he realized what his passion was, like the discourse about talking about video games was actually the thing he loved. And, uh, and then kind of the information uh, sharing, seeking element of, you know, researching and writing about pieces of video games was what he loved that drove him to li libraries. So, you know, not everyone who <laughs> loves video games is going to go into a game design career. Um, but, you know, I tried to help them understand what the different options are. That was a very long answer to your question. No, no, I think that actually summed up a lot of what I what would be appropriate because I think 
Um, as someone who originally wanted to, ex my personal experience is I wanted to explore the concept of video games for like majority of my life. And then obviously when I was around that age of choosing colleges, I decided it wasn't really my forte where I think the, the process kind of like alluded away. And plus I was always afraid of, I love video games so much. I don't want, I don't want to hate my work if it is video games. And that was obviously a biggest fear. And my opinion of that has changed throughout the years, but I think like, it's always important to always look into like a per, uh, perspective of like what can lead to you towards that field. Cause it, it couldn't always be uh, game design. I, like I always, I'm considering like video game sound design or even soundtrack wise and, and, or like art art for the video game. Any, there, there's so many different levels to making a video game that I think are not really shed to light. Like such as like voice acting, such as obviously gra graphic designing, and, and I could be forgetting missing some because this is not my field of work, <laughs> but uh, it's definitely something that I think teenagers should definitely be more open to per se, especially if they want to pursue video games. And I think your response to was actually really appropriate from a mentorship perspective. Yeah. And it's something working with students who are interested in creative fields. There's also the whole business side of the industry, um, you know publishing, marketing, all of that. So you can be near video games, but not necessarily part of like the actual creation process of the game. Mm -hmm. And that goes into my next question. How does that actually work between g making a game and then obviously go into the publishing side with marketing and, and kind of getting to the consumer perspective? Like what would be, what would be the relationship you, you think would have to be needed? It's really nebulous, um, at least until you get into the kind of upper echelon of things, um, because there's a lot of different, it's a weird web, um, because there's the developing studio that is making the game. Um, sometimes they self-publish, sometimes they don't. If there's an external publisher, then there's a lot of weird connections going on. Mostly those connections are fostered and, and created by uh, by the upper management of the company um, who are more the business people than the de actual developers uh, and designers and you know regular members of the team that creates the game um, and of course there's also the factors of well is it first party as in is this company making the game owned by a company that produces a, a box to play the games on um, you know, what's the budget like, um, hundreds of other tiny little weird factors. Um, and then if you're independent, if you're an independent developer and you don't, you know, technically publish at all, you know, you release the game on some platform like Steam or, uh, you know, Xbox Live Market or Nintendo Switch, um, the digital marketplace, whatever Nintendo calls it nowadays. Um, I think it's called the eShop. <laughs> yeah, there you go. They, they've changed the name like nine <laughs> times over the year. I, I lost track. Um, but yeah, no. So, I mean, there is a business side to it very much. So um, there definitely is marketing. There's HR. There's it's just like any other company in the world. Just, you know, your 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 product, um, your your, you know, whatever you're pushing out the door at the end of the day is, is a very different thing. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think, what was it? 
I recently saw a documentary. I believe it was Double Fine, Double Fine Studios. Oh, it was yeah. the yeah, it was I a documentary. Yeah, it was a documentary uh, on their game Grim Fandango, and then uh, which is one of my favorite games of all time. Yeah, and <laughs> but it, it kind of what it did was it kind of showed the difference between like um, the studios developing games by themselves and self-publishing as compared to like uh, working under a publisher like say like Sony or things like that, like big companies that are usually pushing out the products and everything. Like it really showed the difference because uh, they sort of had to like self-fund and like crowdfund and everything and get the money in order to create the game. And then it's like um, going from there, it's like they, they planned everything themselves. They grabbed resources from different teams that were already developing things for publishing companies. And so it's like they got, so they sort of had the creative freedom to do what they wanted with the game. They had the time, they had the space, they had the people in order to create, you know, I believe it was, uh, it was actually Broken Age. Yeah, because they, mm-hmm. they were uh, funding Broken Age. Mm-hmm. And they had, the, they had full control over the process of creating Broken Age and when it came out. And it was actually a pretty good game, at least from my perspective. And, but like, uh, as compared to everything else, it was strange seeing how they had to argue at least a little for like resources because they still had to leave uh, members of their own team to develop things for separate uh, separate publishing companies, separate studios, separate like ideas. And so it's like they didn't have control over that, at least not as much as they wanted to. They didn't have the control over those products that they were producing than they did over Broken Age. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right. So with everything given on for different studios and obviously the both business and like creative side of video games. I have a hypothetical question for both of you guys. If you had the opportunity, like just full guaranteed position, would you work for an, would you want to design an, uh, off a triple a title or would you want to work on an indie, an indie game or an indie title? My biggest examples would be like, if you want to work for like a triple a, like, I guess like say stuff like ea per se or (laughs) awkward design or it's like something like really on a small team like i guess hollow knight like stuff like that i think um i would prefer to work on some small team like hollow knight team cherry making hollow knight and everything like that because you can really tell the passion the creativity and how they actually like when they start building all of the features and everything, how they go for the more fun aspect, the more intriguing things, the stuff that will really pull you in. My biggest worry with working at like a triple A studio is that, um, like Eric said before, the business people don't won't really understand to the same depth as the team that you're working with. Mm-hmm. So even if you are creating like really good features or you find that you find uh, one aspect of the game really fun and you're like, oh, maybe it's better to iterate on this one process and keep going and build a game from there. The business side of game design will be like, hey, no, we asked you for this, this, this and this and we need it by this day and we need you to complete this milestone by this time. And so instead of continuing to work on the like really fun aspect of the game, you have to produce everything that they want you to produce and then push it out to them and be like oh yeah okay well here's the game that you wanted instead of being like oh we found this really fun thing can we propose this idea to you and then you know sort of change the plan and go to that yeah they kind of treat it like regular software development sometimes and that's dangerous 
Can I ask why, actually? I'm just curious. Um, from how I understand it, and it was explained to me by, um, I actually saw so some of the teachers I had when I was at Columbia, um, these teachers have either moved up or moved on from regular teaching. Um, but uh, I learned from Lewis Harris, who has a very large um, resume uh, and list of games that he's worked on. Uh, as well as Tom Dowd and quite a few others that were, have been in the industry. Um, and they, they explained it in the sense of a lot of the people who, who go into the business side of game development, um, uh, uh, not all of them, obviously. They're, you know, it, I don't know what the ratio is, but some of them are doing it just because it's a job in business. Um, and so they're not making their decisions based on what, you know, what they think is fun for the player. They're not making the decision based on the consumers. They're making decisions based on what is most profitable for the company, what makes us look good, um, you know, PR, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, what, what has the best result for this company? Or in some cases, how does this benefit me personally? Um, and granted, that is not the short-sighted view of, again, most people in the game industry um but there are some of the suits as they're you know people refer to them as that just they they see it as any other industry they don't understand what makes it unique what makes it different um you know distinct and um so their decisions tend to reflect that interesting and i think that, that uh I, i've seen i've read a little bit on some aspects of it where they kind of shows of I, I guess it goes into the saying of you put, you get what you put in per se. And I think it's like, we have like, and then I, I mentioned a lot of just indie titles per se. Cause like, I think those show in a lot of effort with a lot of minuscule budgets per se. Like my biggest thing that comes to mind is like undertale where it's, it, was, mm -hmm. it was literally a Kickstarter. Was it a Kickstarter? I think it was a Kickstarter. Yeah. Kickstarter Indiegogo. I can't remember, but um, it didn't have a lot of funding. And when it came out, it just blew up. And obviously, it's like it's a, one of the best indie games out there, and it's and a I, technical mess. Is it <laughs> real? <laughs> Under the hood, that game runs. Uh, from what I from what I've been told, I've never dug into the code myself. I don't think it's public. Um, for people who have like hacked it and cracked it open, um, they, they said, and even Toby Fox himself has been like, "Yeah, it's kind of a mess. <laughs> like it runs well because it's low res and like simple, not because it's you know well well coded." It sounds like it's more of a um, more of a hard coding problem, less than a, a sort of like uh, adaptable system, because that's yeah. actually a lot of what they try to teach us. They're like, don't hard code anything in. Try to make mm -hmm. everything as flexible as possible. If you're gonna mm -hmm. put variables and things in, make sure that they can be edited, changed, modified as much as possible without actually affecting all of the entirety of the code. Because if you hard code anything in and something goes wrong going to spend hours days weeks months trying to figure out what went wrong how it affects everything and then trying to fix it yeah toby Fox. that was actually undertale was his first actual game development project ever really and wow. he just he just i mean there is a luck is a skill as we say in trading card games <laughs> and it is part of the card I, I think there is a you know a hint of that in his project because he he struck gold he hit the mother load that one yeah. time, and you know, uh, Delta Rune was definitely good. I actually like Delta Rune more than regular Undertale, um, but like, you're never gonna capture that lightning in a bottle again. 
Interesting. That's definitely a different perspective. I never would have thought about Undertale per se. Right? I have. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Isn't game design exciting? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> All right. Then this goes into my next fun part. Um, this is more a little on current events, and this can go for Taylor as well. For everyone. What do you guys think and or most excited about the next generation of consoles? All right, so I'll take the reins on this one again, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I, I have that large technical background, so I geek out about every reveal of any little piece of hardware or software or whatever. Um, so as a developer, I'm losing my mind over the Unreal Engine update reveal. That was uh, nice. Because my God, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And granted, that's a controlled environment. They, Pretty. you know, they were able to script everything very precisely to show off, you know, the best possible situation. Um, but still, like that technology is going to be usable for the next maybe decade to come. Um, and it, it just it seeing what is possible makes me wonder what they haven't considered as possible, because you can do literally anything with programming anything you just have to figure out how um and so that's that's why i get excited about the software stuff but the hardware i'm extremely excited for um both both the new mainline consoles um i don't even play that many console games i'm a pc guy and i love pc mostly but i do own consoles and i'm really really excited for the steps for the the leaps forward that sony and microsoft are taking in their hardware because it's about time. <laughs> it's about time. Crash 4? Oh! <laughs> I grew up time. on Crash Bandicoot, and you know one of my teachers actually worked on it at Columbia. Um, and um, oh, oh, I'm so excited. I'm so, so, so excited. <laughs> I, I like the idea. I, I like the new generation consoles and everything. I've actually recently started trying to get more into like the technical aspects of, uh, you know, hardware's con hardware on consoles and software on consoles. But like my biggest thing and the thing that makes me laugh internally so much when I'm trying to like record and stuff and whenever I think about it, I just try to stifle my laugh is that this is going to be a nightmare for artists because they were going to have to make these models, render these models. You like, they were just explaining in the reveal the number of like polygons that and tries that were going just into the environment, just into the characters and the size and scope that these files are going to take. So imagine these poor artists having to slave away at creating these super hyper-realistic models of either the environment, of items, of characters, of expressions. It's just, oh, it's like I'm excited for what's to come, but I still like, it makes me laugh and it makes me kind of sad at the same time because this is going yeah, to be that, like, <laughs> Gotta that, put that, in that work. <laughs> that, that actually, <laughs> something I would want to mention, um, th this job is thankless. No matter really? who you are, you're not thanked enough in this industry. Um, programmers, they, you know, they reiterate their code. They try to re-optimize. They try to fix glitches, bugs, and issues. The, the, you know, the joke, one of my favorite jokes of programmers is, you know, 99, you know, bugs on the wall. You take one down, pass it around, 125 bugs on the wall. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You're never yeah. going to squash every glitch and bug in a video game. Artists, they're, they're redoing assets and, you know, oh, well, 
this isn't glowy enough or you know i, I think this should be a different shade of green um and they're you know or or this character's nose should be a little bit more elongated you know and so, so it's like people complaining of what they don't really fully know about it's exactly. no it's not even that it's more so just that in the work environment like everybody has something that they're constantly doing over and over breaking their back to make this game work and look good and, and just be the best it can be and you know you can thank each other all you want but like you know what's going on you know you're just <laughs> doing the same thing over and over again like any other job and uh you know it, it is what it is before, and before we even go back on this topic, I, I, I very much think it's very thankless because um, my favorite video game developer is Masahiro Sakurai, which if you don't know who that is... That poor man. That is the creator of the Super Smash Brothers series and that also the, the inventor of Kirby. But no, I've just heard horror stories. He needs to uh, retire. He does how it much... to himself a little bit, though. Yeah, but... Yeah, it, that is true. But like... it, it just shows how much passion you guys have. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. per se where and he I've, I've read so much of his like he writes an article pa- article like uh what's I, I don't know what the word panel pillar something blog yes it, he writes something something okay and weekly and then essentially it sounds like a blog <laughs> <laughs> yeah he just writes so much how he's so tired and it's like i'm never gonna get a vacation because we keep asking him for more and it just goes to the point of th- uh the go thank uh, Mr. Sakurai and never ask him for anything ever again, <laughs> because at this point, this is like the the third time in a row where we've gotten like a Super Smash Brothers game, when reality Melee or Brawl was supposed to be the last one, because he hates making sequels and he only he actually was it. he was sent on a forced vacation once actually Nintendo oh. actually recognized like dude, you're working yourself to death, take a week off or else. And there was that one point where he was stra- he he was developing on the game and he was strapped to an IV bag. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, he he's that's not how it should be actually ideally. Um Yeah. I mean in the past companies like Rockstar have come out and said, you know, they've celebrated like, "Oh yeah, our employees put in 120-hour work weeks." That's not good. <laughs> that means they're not seeing their families. That's me. That means they're not going home at night. Um and then, you know, they kind of flip around. They're like, well, you know, they kind of choose to. And it's like, you shouldn't allow that anyway. No matter yeah. what you spin you put on it, that shouldn't be the case. Um, so the industry is trying to figure out a way to move away from that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, it wasn't. I, I keep hearing that was like a big issue because I remember at some point, like Rockstar kept, supposedly word got around that it kept overworking and underpaying their their de- developers for like a Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, yeah, it's not just mm-hmm. them either. It's, you know, EA uh-huh. did it. Um, a few other companies. There, there's one company in the Illinois region, Midwest. Um, there's actually a support group for families of people who work at that company. Aww. And uh, they actually just kind of work with each other to help raise their families together because their spouses and significant others and whatever are working there. And, you know, they just never get time off. Um, and that's not the norm in the industry. Please okay. don't ever think that's the norm. Um, yeah, no, please. But, yeah. like, it happens. Uh, so you need to be able, you know, that's one skill you have to be able to have going into this industry or any industry, really, with any adult job. Know when to walk away. Yep. <laughs> uh, know, know when your health is more important than your job. 
That was definitely, I'm so glad you clarified that. Cause honestly, I thought that was the norm for a little bit where it's like, cause that's how everyone thinks. It's like, you have to keep working, go, go, go. And I always see developers. It's all I ever hear about that. And seeing that you guys, Oh, that's not the norm. I'm like, Oh, I'm a little taken back by it. Yeah. 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 What you're thinking about is crunch culture, mm-hmm. which okay. is like sort of taken a hard hold on the industries. Like it's better not to think of that as the norm. But it does happen kind of often, a little too often, where they're just, like, completely overworking their workers. At this point, it's basically, like, losing... If you want to think of it from, like, a game perspective or from, like, a show perspective or anything, it's like using your HP to power your mana. Ah. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a really good metaphor. Um, That's a whole... I mean, really, it is a whole separate topic of discussion. I could sit here and explain the massively interconnected factors for hours and hours and and waste all of your time forever Um, (laughs) but yeah it is an unfortunate reality in some sections of the industry yes Uh, go ahead sorry oh and because i'm a librarian book recommendation um there's a really interesting book called blood sweat and pixels uh by jason schreier um, that, that every chapter um, follows the story of a different game being developed and the culture at different companies. And it, it touches on AAA uh, companies, little indie projects, you know, small indie companies, one person making a game, Stardew Valley is one of the games in there. Um, and I think it, it gives a pretty, like, interesting broad overview of the different ways game development can look at different levels mm-hmm. um you know crunch culture is definitely talked a lot about in that book but there are also good examples of how that is not necessary and games can be made uh without that kind of culture. absolutely yeah no I, i've had that book recommended by a multitude of teachers um <laughs> and like i i have a friend who worked at jackbox um i'm sure a lot of people are familiar with their party games they are really fun mm-hmm. games mm-hmm. um and their version of crunch was an extra two hours to the week for any maybe three people and like that was it so like it really just depends um because some companies you know they actually do it right (laughs) it's a learning curve well i mean would you say that things are kind of getting better and more aware then per se because i know it's definitely getting i i know from a general consumer perspective i i'm seeing it a lot more come to light than how it used to be I mean, the way they were teaching it right now at Columbia, I feel like it is getting more recognition, at least with the people who are trying to go into the industry, because what they're what they're trying to propose a lot is trying to uh, instate scrum development into the companies. So like being able to grab that infrastructure and place it into game design. But like the main idea behind implementing scrum and everything was that it was sort of like a system to properly organize all the aspects that needed to be worked on and then modifying that infrastructure to work with the company that you were at. So then it, it would grab that sort of base frame and then you would, you're able to like change it and modify it so that it would create a more efficient system for development. So then now you wouldn't have like crazy long crunch hours or you wouldn't have to like be creating multiple features all at once to, in one giant milestone, but rather iterate on the features in like short sprints so then you'd be going for like week two weeks possibly like a month of 
focusing on specific aspects and then if you couldn't finish some aspects it'd be put onto the backlog and then it would be pushed into the next sprint but it was basically complete as much as you can for the sprint and if there's some things that you can't complete then that's fine it can be put in the backlog and pushed forward and then you can sort of just like uh, test fix and create a more complete project by the end of the sprint cool all right. Well, enough on the pressing talk. I want to go back to our big question. About <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no! I think it's great. I think it's great that we uh, that, that 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 spawned a different type of important conversation. And I honestly, I think I missed. So I'm glad it was brought up. And I think to segue back on my opinion of next, I want to talk about next gen again. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I had a I had a big idea on it. Massive it tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the blame for that one. That's on me. It was a side quest, okay? It was hey, a really intriguing yeah. side quest, and we were just like, look, main game, you can wait. <laughs> All right. Um, honestly, I think for my perspective is really fun for, on how I see the next gen generation of consoles because I definitely I, – I like seeing console wars because I always think competitive competitiveness of both ga uh, gaming consoles, specifically just Microsoft and Sony, it forces them to try to one-up one each other and just be better for the consumer. Because at the end of the day, the consumer has to benefit from it because they have to sell. And I think one of the big things I kept seeing more on, though, it was more on so on Sony's part than Microsoft, was there's a lot more games, <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm really excited for launch for when the PlayStation 5 comes out. And particularly, everyone just keeps – this is the most technical era – of next generation consoles I'm even hearing of because all I'm hearing is ray tracing, haptic feedback, at a super powerful SSD. And I'm like, these are all just words to me. <laughs> I mean, like if you looked up the actual like No, no, and I did and I, everything, it is actually like astonishing the work that they're doing. I the even lengths that they're going to and the I, technology that they're developing is just so I even sat through that like that Sony conference where it's just talking about nothing but technical jargon, and I'm like, okay, that seems kind of cool. So it's, it's definitely something a bit I'm excited for, especially when um, for trailers that show gameplay, because at some point, even if it's like early early context of what the game can do, it looks phenomenal. And at that point, I think I remember having this conversation with, with Eric off screen where I think you mentioned this is technology that we wouldn't really be getting for another like four or five years, yet we're getting it so soon. Yeah. Um, so it's funny you mentioned the hardware because, you know, like I said, I, I geek out about this stuff like crazy. Um, yeah, the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One were almost identical in hardware. Um so, you know, when I saw people arguing over that, I was like, who cares? Like, it, the, the hardware isn't what's important. What's important is how they use that hardware, um, mm -hmm. which is where Sony yeah. originally thrived because they had a small secondary processor on, that, on their, you know, PS4 to account for the processing power needed to record your gameplay on the fly. Microsoft didn't have that. So that was their slight advantage there, but then they got lazy with software development in their operating system, and Microsoft took the lead in that, where they were originally behind, and even though their system was just a smidgen weaker, they actually eked out more performance over Sony. Um, and that back and forth is hilarious to watch the drama in, because both companies <laughs> want the other one to succeed just as much as themselves, which is kind of, you know, counterintuitive, you'd think, for competing companies. Um, but like Hugo said, it, you know, 
that, that fosters a competitive nature, you know, a spirit of competition that makes them both push themselves harder to get ahead. Um, and, you know, where we're seeing that in the current generation of consoles is the storage mediums. Um, each company has developed their own proprietary storage device, which, I mean, at the end of the day, it is flash storage. It, it's an SSD, like you can put in any anything, um, but their own version of it that puts a unique spin on it and how they leverage that with the software is going to be intense. Because otherwise, the, yeah, those consoles are basically identical. <laughs> Just like before. Nice. <laughs> I think the thing that like me really made me laugh about that was um, the immediate quote that came to mind was uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And the thing that the image that came to my mind was, yes, they want each company to like sort of succeed as well as themselves. But it's like it's basically, oh, I'm the giant now. And then the other company sort of steps on the shoulders of the pre of like say Sony. So like Xbox stepping on Sony and they're like, Oh, well we have the power now. And Sony's like, well, that's just what I was waiting for. So now I'm just going to step on your shoulder and be even taller than you. Yeah. The industry kind of followed the hardware, at least for uh, Sony and Microsoft in particular kind of has this cycle of um, how do, how do I put it? I'm trying to think of a way to describe it, but Effectively, um, I guess I'll call it arrogance syndrome, <laughs> where one company gets a massive leap up on the other somewhere in the cycle, right? And then they say, well, I'm on top. I don't, you know, I, I don't need to worry about the guy below me. They're, they're below me. What are they going to do? Well, I mean, they're building a ladder. They're going to climb up ahead of you. So you better do something about it. Ah, they're, they're, they're slower. They're, they'll, they'll get here eventually, but by the time they get here, we'll be up there. It's, you know, tortoise and the hare situation. So, uh, you know, it's just the difference of both people and the hare, you know, taking a break every so often. Um, and so they, they kind of play this, this, this jumping game, the leapfrog of trying to get ahead of each other and then stopping and then the other one jumps ahead. It's, it's quite entertaining to watch just because <laughs> it's drama and it's fun. <laughs> awesome. Okay, uh, Taylor, what do you think about oh. this whole... Hugo, you know me. I find it hard to care. Um, well, I mean, hey, you're honest. Something. You're honest. I just, I, honestly, I want your opinion on it. I'm definitely curious. I, I mean, I, and, and what I play and what I'm interested in, I mean, I'm a PC gamer. My PS4 gathers dust. Um, so I, you know, and I think I'm so into like the tiny indie world where a lot of the indie games can run on anything, can run on my terrible, like, seven-year-old computer or laptop, um, that I just, I think I get, I, I you know, I, I really respect the hardware, the, the whole console development process. I do respect it. I just find it hard to care until we start talking about the games um, themselves. That is perfectly fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, then my, I, you thing, know my what? thing is this then. What games, are, have any games caught your attention then? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, I, in the past, it, Sony has had better exclusives for their consoles or uh, games that appeal to me more. 
Um, I don't imagine that will change, but um, I also, they're not, they're not the kind of games that, that capture my personal interest. So. What? And first of all, I think you need to give yourself a little more credit than, than what you think you deserve only for the sake of <laughs> what we just provided is just, we have two people who are very much very high on the technical side of video games. I have someone who's very much into video games, but on a little more casual side. And then of course I consider you as the casual market since you don't really care much. And I think your audience is going to be the hardest one for the companies to reach per se, because I think that's just an issue with just, trying to capture the casual market because I don't know. give me an interesting game like give me something that I, I I haven't seen before or I I play because I enjoy immersive experiences um and compelling narrative um there's a game about that, so give me sna- that. snacks that it turns in the bugs that are snacks <laughs> bugs, wait, bugs are snacks what yeah that's one of the games is literally yeah. called yeah that, it's that literally called bug snacks. all right <laughs> <laughs> check that out yeah that is my closest thing i can come up with on a fly <laughs> i mean goodbye I, volcano high everyone's uh, hating on that right now but like but, it seems like it's meant to be an immersive story that's like more immersive than interactive like, <laughs> like right. you're supposed to watch it more than play i don't it. know give me a short hike and untitled goose game things like that i'll be happy you gotta hit the niche man yeah that's where you gotta go you gotta go Uh, (laughs) non-mainstream yeah all right well i think that's a good way to kind of close things out on a really good note um before we wrap things up do you guys have any final messages you would like to have to people listening in about like your field like any like like 10 words or less or anything like that i have trouble with 3d game design (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, All right. Man, I don't know, man. Um, I think we covered a lot of bases though today. We did cover a yeah. lot. Um, <laughs> break out of your shell. I mean, that's, that's really all I can say. Break out of your shell. Try new things. You know, you'll learn from failure more than you'll learn from success. Awesome. Okay. So this, I think that'll wrap it up today then. Thank you guys. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Roger, for joining us in today's episode. You guys have been a great, great guest on how, on how this conversation went. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. I'd be glad to come back or chat off, off camera, off headphones, whatever. (laughs) Awesome.